Hello, and welcome to the Mac Frazier podcast, the podcast with the name of the person who's talking. I guess that's <laughs> a lot of podcasts that have that kind of a thing going on. Okay. I still don't have intro music. Will I ever? Yeah, maybe. Uh, so today I thought uh, I'd spare you a chapter of a novel. If you were looking forward to another novel chapter, I'm so sorry. That's not happening today. Maybe next week. Today, I'd like to share with you some thoughts that I've been having. So two days ago, um, Monday as I record this, was a snow day. And this is a podcast, so you can't see my fingers doing the little bunny ear air quotes. But yesterday was a quote-unquote snow day at the church and school that I work at. And also where my youngest son attends classes. And uh, in fact, based on the weather, yesterday, Tuesday, could also just as easily have been declared one or at least, you know, a late start day for the school. There's that kind of day. But it wasn't. No snow day on Tuesday. Yes, on Monday. Why? Well, I mean, students don't actually physically go to the school anyway. Since March of last year, the school's been pretty close to online only. So, why do they even have a snow day? Well, mostly because the school principal isn't a complete Grinch. And he recognized that the students would appreciate having a snow a day, despite, or even maybe because of, the weirdness caused by the pandemic. So, we've kind of split the difference, and we declared Monday a snow a day, but Tuesday a regular school day. And it's all increasingly obvious how arbitrary these things can be. Now, there's a lot that is less than ideal about distance-only education for kids. Likewise, there are some big challenges for workers and employees in this world of suddenly tons of people telecommute that we now find ourselves in. But there are also certainly benefits. There are portions of my job at the church that require I spend time in the presence of other people. But there are others that do not, and in fact, that are made much more efficient when I'm not being interrupted by, you know, all the various drop-ins and drive-bys that my office would normally experience under, you know, pre-COVID circumstances. And uh, as a little bit of irony, as I was first putting together my thoughts on this, uh, I kept getting interrupted by a loud conversation that was happening in the next room over in my house where I was doing my initial prep for this. I'm in my office here at the church now. So ironically, I came here to be less interrupted. But for the most part, when I'm in my office, I'm more likely to have just sort of random things drop in. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the, the trade-offs. Now, with all this going on, I, maybe like you, definitely like many others, have been really thinking a lot about what all this is going to mean in a post-COVID-19 world. That's, there's my air quotes again, post-COVID-19. By the way, I, so I do a lot of <laughs> writing about COVID, coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, COVID, SARS, blah, 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 to the Rona, the pandemic. Um, and every time, well, why am I doing that? Well, because it, it comes up a lot. But every time I do, I trip over, well, what am I calling it now? A can I say COVID? Because, you know, COVID-19 is not the only COVID. Uh, coronavirus, well, actually, this is the second SARS coronavirus. Anyway, 
that's neither here nor there. This is something I think about every time I use the phrase. Uh, that's why I mostly like to say pandemic. So let's call it in a post-pandemic world. What is going to come of all this distance learning and distance working, online stuff that we're doing? And I'm wondering this because I promise you, we're going to see some of these changes in how we work stick around even after the events that force them on everyone subside. One of the biggest reasons telecommuting didn't already become this big widespread thing is that there's a disadvantage to being one of the few people not actually coming into the office. And so there's a built-in resistance, even for those who were most inclined to give it a try. Like there are places that were offering uh, work from home and um, some people would take advantage of it. But in most of those circumstances, if you were like the one of the few that was phoning it in, I mean, right there, we've got language that's derogatory towards the, the behavior, you were at a disadvantage. You would miss out on a lot of sort of informal, you know, the meeting outside of the meeting kind of things. And um, even if you weren't missing out on these things, I, there was always the worry that you would be. And so there was this social um, inertia that would keep people coming into work even if they didn't have to in order to do their work. And, you know, on top of that, uh, businesses weren't really super interested in giving up control. But with the outbreak of the pandemic, masses of people have suddenly been forced to all switch over to distance working at the same time. Now, it's not everybody, obviously. You know, we're talking about uh, white-collar workers, creative professionals, um, a lot of people in the gig economy uh, were already starting to work this way, but ended up working a lot more this way, a lot of office work, you know, that kind of thing. This is not impacting uh, manual labor, uh, a lot of retail work, stuff like that. But still, it's a huge chunk of the population that has made this switch all of a sudden as one big group. And a lot of us who have made the switch are finding we like it, even with the new challenges and irritations that come with it. And so, with the now-accelerated telework revolution many are finding themselves in, we should expect to see a domino effect of other changes, all right? In other words, the effect of the pandemic is not just going to be we all discover, hey, there are some advantages to not coming into work and to doing it all from home, um, so now we're just going to change. That's going to have an effect on other things. Now, the biggest one that I've seen talked about recently is the decoupling of our careers from where we physically choose to live. In a telecommuting world, finding a new hometown where the internet access is fast, cheap, and reliable may become more important than a location that has a good job market. Because the job market, for many, is going digital just as many other markets already, to one degree or another, have. So, this means changes for the digital workers, of course, they can now choose to live in places that better serve their needs in the areas of friendship, family, recreational activities, culture, lifestyle, climate, etc. Um, Justin McElroy, a podcaster, founder of Polygon, a bunch of other things, uh, recently did a TEDx virtual talk um, where he really addressed this. I encourage you to go search it out. If you go to YouTube, uh, Justin McElroy, uh, the, what did he call it? 
I think it was like the work home gap. I don't know. If you search it out, Justin McElroy, TEDx, you'll, you'll find it. Um, and he, he was bringing this up. He's talking about how if like, for instance, if you're a creative professional, um, it used to be like if you wanted to do voice work, there were a couple of cities in America where you really probably should move to if that's the kind of work you wanted to do. But now that's not so true anymore. And um, so now you can decide to live in, you know, the hometown you grew up in because that's where your friends and family are or or whatever. Um, you can You can make choices about where to live that really aren't much influenced by – what you do for a living or who you do it for. Maybe time zones can still have something of an impact if simultaneity is important for aspects of your job, but you don't have to move to the big city to get a big city job anymore. In other words, we're seeing, I think, the very leading edge of an effect similar to the urbanization that came about after the Industrial Revolution. But instead of everyone moving into the city, everyone's now moving online. And it could lead to de-urbanization to a certain degree. Um, so that's the, that's the next thing. Not only does it have an impact on the workers who are working online, but – and I think this is actually more interesting – is it's going to bring about changes for the physical locations themselves. So, okay. It's, it, an obvious effect would be real estate prices. You'll expect to see them shift. Um, in fact, there's some – Signs of them starting to shift already as uh, what makes a place worth moving to changes and as priorities shift. But also, and, and this was uh, Justin McElroy's point that I thought was particularly fascinating. Um, wish he had spent more time on this one. He had a, a larger topic. It was a good talk, but I wish he'd really dug into this one a little bit deeper. Consider the social impact of this. All right. So small communities are going to experience less of a talent drain. And I think it's going to be mostly positive. So, so what do I mean by that? So again, let's go back to the creative professional, whether you're a voice actor or a writer or um, an animator or whatever. You know, let's say you do something creative. Your art is your business, uh, but not in the starving artist hoping to be discovered by a gallery sense. But like, you're you're a gig artist, right? If you no longer have to move to, I don't know. Hollywood, New York, uh, Cincinnati, wherever it is that, that your particular sub uh, section of the entertainment world has as a hub, if you no longer have to move there, well, then you don't have to move. And a lot of people are born in small communities. A lot of people in cities move there from much smaller communities. What does it do for the community to no longer have the creatives among them leaving when they get jobs. Or think about this the other way around. What kind of an impact has been ongoing with small towns and, and rural areas and smaller communities, even smaller cities across America, across the world, for the last 200 years when you know, people of certain talents or inclinations inevitably leave? What does that do to the culture and environment that they leave behind? Well, that's going to change. Now people are going to stick around and will have more of an influence on their local area and also be more influenced by it. I think that's fascinating.
Now, here's the thing. My instinct is to be cautiously excited by these kinds of changes. Now, part of it is I'm very change friendly. Um, at times I've, I've introduced myself as a chaos monster <laughs> um, because I'm, I like change. Uh, I'm attracted to it and I'm inclined to spur it on. But also, I see a lot of potential good in this. This isn't just change because, hey, I'm bored with civilization. Let's tear it down and build a different one. But like, there's good in this. I think people being able to to live based upon, you know, values other than work, I think is is powerful and useful. And I think there's a lot of efficiencies to be had. Employers, um, they're going to have you know feel an impact as well. It costs less to have a smaller footprint if you don't have to support space for warehousing all of these workers that don't actually have to all be in the same place, just as an example. So I think there'll be economic efficiencies. I think there'll be a positive cultural impact. I think it will lead to better personal uh, lifestyles for a lot of people. But, um, yeah, big but. Um, so this is all exciting. Maybe it's healthy for civilization, but I'm also worried a lot about the loss of intangible value that's going to come about from a reduction of, um, for lack of a better term, random social interactions, maybe semi-random, unplanned bumping into one another. Because the online world has no public spaces. Everything there belongs to someone. And every online space is there because some government agency or corporation or organization is providing that particular bit of the, the internet for a specific purpose. And the purposes are, are optimized, uh, or the spaces are optimized for their purposes. Uh, they're designed to be efficient. And so they don't leave a lot of room for randomness. Right? Um, like, okay, so you could very easily get into a weird uh, spat in the comment section under a YouTube video if you respond to somebody that you think said something dumb and you point it out and they do too. But but that's, that's not a social interaction. In fact, it's a pretty anti-social interaction based on most YouTube comment sections. Um, no, so, okay. You go to Starbucks and uh, for a while, the Starbucks that I went to this a number of years ago was not a, did not have a drive-thru. Uh, many Starbucks do, some don't, uh, but my closest one didn't and, uh, you know, it was convenient. So that's where I would go when I wanted uh, some over-roasted, overpriced coffee, uh, which I frequently did. And the old school way of doing it was you go, you walk in the door, there's a line. You stand in the line for a while behind a bunch of other people. The line gets short in front of you, gets longer behind you until finally you step up to the counter and you place your order, you pay for it, and then you shuffle off to the other end of the counter where you stand amid a small group of similar customers all waiting for your particular drink to come up. You grab it, you say thank you if you're polite, and you walk out the door, get back in your car, and get on with your day. That worked fine for a while uh, until the online ordering ahead app things started happening. And I was a pretty early adopter of this. Um, and I love it. I love being able to put the order in, drive up, walk in, see my cup sitting there 
waiting for me, pick it up, nod to the barista, walk out, in and out, bim, bam, done. Super efficient. Doesn't waste nearly as much time. I hate standing in lines. But you know what? Things would happen standing around. So, you know, it, it, it's not every time, but these, there are these little things that happen. Like um, maybe there's somebody else in the line who's on their phone and they're having just a really crazy conversation and only hearing one, one side of it is really interesting, but you know, a little weird. And you're trying not to eavesdrop, but it's so loud and they're, they're going on and on. And then you look up and you're, you, you lock eyes with another person standing in line quietly trying to pretend they're not eavesdropping. And you just have this moment where like you nod and, and they, they nod and their eyebrows go up and it's like, you connect. You don't know this person. They don't know you. Neither of you know this other person who's having this crazy conversation on the phone. But you just had this human moment. And then it's your turn to order. You place your order. That has value. Standing in line in Starbucks, you may, you know, while you're waiting for your drink, see a friend come in and get into the line to order. And you'll wave. And maybe you'll have a quick little conversation. Or maybe out in the parking lot. That's never going to happen online. You don't have accidental social bumping into friends and strangers in the same way uh, in a virtual space that you do in a physical space. And I, I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, there's a value in bumping into a friend when standing in line at Starbucks. But you know what? My love affair with ordering ahead on the app and skipping the line is really powerful. It, this shows up in other places too. Chance encounters with strangers while waiting for a bus have deepened my appreciation of humanity. And in fact, I was I was talking about this idea with uh, a friend uh, earlier today, and they mentioned, and I don't have the article, so I can't cite it here. Um, it might not have been an article, might have been an interview, but it's something that they had, had heard or read uh, about a study that tied um, human tied our capacity for empathy to these kinds of random encounters with strangers. And that if you have less of them, you tend to be less empathetic towards others. And that makes total sense to me. You don't, you, the, the more your life is structured around not having to interact with people, the more strangers turn into interference or noise or an invasion or at least an intrusion in your well-constructed life. And the degree to which we turn one another into intruders, I, I think there's danger there. Um, so another area I was thinking about it, I, I play chess. I love chess. I've gone in and out of it. I've had phases. Right now I'm, I'm in a chess phase. And I play way more chess against serious opponents now than I ever did um, back in the, uh, I guess, the early 2000s when – I, I was like doing like serious tournaments and stuff. Um, I play a lot more now because I can find a game at any minute of any hour of any day from anywhere that I can get a net connection on my phone or computer, whatever. And I can find it against good competition that's well matched to my, my skill level. And yet some of my favorite moments of playing serious chess come from conversations with you know, other chess players out in the lobby outside a physical tournament hall between games, you know, where, you know, somebody's just 
lost a hard fight and you know they're 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 trying to like blow off some steam and maybe you've had a different experience and you just you know you share that experience you may not know the other guy but you but you just had a shared experience and you're bumping into each other and you're waiting for the next round to start those are some of my favorite interactions and you don't schedule those you don't plan them you can't it doesn't doesn't make sense to plan them um, that never happens with playing on chess.com or any of the other online servers. Just how would it? Um, so that gives me concern. Uh, also, I remember how I felt about the first internet revolution back in the 1990s. Um, the internet's much older. I'd say the first real public revolution happened in the 90s. Uh, and I helped build this world that we're in today. I, I was – you know, on the leading edge of that revolution. I was a co-founder of one of the first web development companies, and I was an excited evangelist for how the internet would free us from the shackles of space and time. I was so excited by this idea, about how it would allow people who, you know, felt lonely in their ultra-niche interests to go out into the new online world and build communities with the, you know, say, 1,000 other geeks on earth who shared their particular weird interest and passion. So they wouldn't be alone anymore. Now they'd be part of this big, huge community because somewhere out there, you know, there's going to be people like you. And the internet would help you find your home, find, find people who shared similar loves and affections as you and connect with them in a way that we couldn't before. And I was extolling everything that is great and convenient about shopping online before e-commerce was even – like before the invention of the term e-commerce, at least as far as I know. And like we all saw it coming, those of us that were working in the web world. And like I said, I, I was super excited by it. I, I thought I was going to do great things. And you know what? I was right. I I predicted a lot of things that did in fact come about. And I and uh, my other colleagues in our company and in our industry at large, we had front row seats to a transformation in how people operate as a society. And a lot of the good that I was excited about came about. But I have to admit, I severely underestimated some of the powerful dehumanizing elements that would come with this kicking free of the earth from beneath our feet. Um, like we all knew that there was something a, a little hard and cold about the online world compared to the uh, brick and mortar flesh world, um, meat space. <laughs> uh, we all thought we were cyberpunks back in the cyberpunk era. It was fun. Um, but it was, so no, we, we knew that there, were, there was some danger of uh, dehumanization. But at the time, it really felt like the people that kept bringing that up were being overly cautious, under-imaginative, um, and kind of, you know, anti-technology, anti-progress. That's that's how it felt. And so I was, I was too quick to dismiss some of the warnings. And to be fair, I don't think the people that were predicting the dehumanizing effect understood how it would actually happen. In fact, I think they expected a different dehumanizing effect than the one we actually got for whatever it's worth. Um, but I, I, I misjudged that. Um, and now we live in a world where the loss of local institutions, which is, you know, come about 
because of some of these technologies has caused us all to be constantly glued to, you know, national politics and, and, you know, the global stage in a wildly unhealthy way. We should all be, you know, up in arms about, you know, what happened in our, in our towns and villages way more often than what's going on in the White House or, or whatever. But we've, we've leveled all of that intermediary and local stuff uh, and we've cleared it out of the way so that we can just be digitally, you know, freebasing the, the, the top level concerns. And it's bad for us. We care way too much about that kind of thing. Also, we live in a world where lunatics and fanatics can instantly network among themselves in powerful feedback machines. And that's causing mayhem. That's, you know, it, it's, it's bad for society that that's happening. And it's empowered by the internet, but in particular by the social media components of the internet, whether you want to call that the World Wide Web 2.0 or 2.5 or whatever. Um, and you know what? It's not just the lunatics and fanatics, though. Even the most sane among us are more and more getting stuck in informational echo chambers, and we're getting radicalized. Even the, the mild, mildest of mannered of those of us, uh, it, if you're participating in social media, it is is inevitably having some sort of a nudging effect on your perspective on the world. It's there's no way around it. That's that that is how it works. Um, so that's concerning. Uh, so my my uh, occupation is I'm a pastor of a church, and uh, I'm here to tell you that churches are in serious serious trouble with all this, um, and because of that, I think the human race is in trouble. Churches are in trouble because it's one of the easiest activities to virtualize, or so it appears. Um, and yet, an online-only church no longer performs the functions that a healthy church should. Now, you could make the argument that many church congregations in America and the world already weren't healthy, already weren't doing what they ought to be doing to be useful contributors to human society. Um, but some, I, I guarantee you have been. And if we go all in on all online, I don't know if that's going to be possible. And the human race needs what churches at their best provide. And without, we're, we're in trouble. And I'm not just saying this because I'm, this is my profession and because I'm a, a religious person. Just putting spirituality, theology, mysticism, all that stuff aside, just the social value of a healthy church is, is huge. Um, okay, so, so what do I mean by a healthy church? So my, my take on it is, is that a healthy church congregation or spiritual community or society, whatever you want to call it, uh, provides three things not just to its membership, but by means of its membership to its neighbors. And those are a, uh, a purpose, a meaning, and a connection. Well, not A. They provide purpose, meaning, and connection. And what I mean by that? Well, so um, 
a church should be a place where a person goes to learn so that they can better understand themselves, their neighbors, the universe, and what all this is about. And to explore meaning. Now, it's not the only means of exploring meaning, but a church that isn't helping you explore meaning, it really isn't doing its job. Um, okay, so that's one part of it. And that's the part I think that people grasp the most easily. And by the way, that's the part that can still be done pretty well in an online-only environment. Now, in addition, um, a church should be a place where a person goes to be inspired to rise above selfishness and materialism and to find ways to contribute to the good of others outside of themselves. And in fact, one of the best ways to inspire people to do that is to enable them to do that, to help people to organize to do good, to to serve the neighbor. And this, this, this purpose lending component of a healthy spiritual community it does incredibly powerful work in terms of making a local community just more functional, making people happier and spiritually healthier. Uh, it does a lot of good. So that's that's the meaning. That's the purpose. And that's hard to do online. But even harder is the connection side of things. A church should be a place of community, a place where you gather – and you're not there because you uh, you share a language or a race or an ethnicity or you're of similar economic background or you uh, vote the same way or you're in the same age cohort. Like you, they're already – you have all sorts of interactions like that. But a healthy church community tends to cross those boundaries. Um, now, a lot of churches aren't totally healthy. But – even the ones that are struggling in many ways, you will still find you know, multi-generational connections and you'll find people of multiple educational backgrounds worshiping together and connecting with one another. And that's valuable. And what's more, a church is a place where we can just sort of socially bump into each other and have random encounters that aren't directed by work or commerce. And that are are there in part because we all know that we're there to be with one another, right? And that's really valuable and that's really, really hard to do in an online-only environment. I'm not going to say impossible. I have some colleagues that are working very hard on the idea of online community. Um, but I really think that, that this lack of public space, lack of chance encounter, this over-efficiency of the online world – makes it so that there's an element that we get in face-to-face, -face, physically present community participation that's like, I don't think there's any other way to get it. Now, maybe we can do it with VR and true like virtual world stuff. That's something that I was very interested in in early days of the internet stuff. Uh, but even then... I just don't see a lot of evidence of it working like that. Um, because again, the, the online world is constructed. It's not found. And so everything already has a purpose. And, and now you can repurpose it. So for instance, um, this gives, this helps date me a little bit. When I was very young, I participated a lot in Usenet or news groups. This existed before Reddit, before 
<laughs> before Facebook by a billion years. Um, you know, this this was you could think of it as a forum, but it was it was somewhere between a forum and an email list. Uh, it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't actually witnessed it, but basically, it was this it was a giant universal, not managed by anybody in particular, categorized set of conversations. And um, there were different rules for creating a new sub forum. Uh, and so they all had these different names. And uh, so there were recreational ones, there were uh, mathematic and scientific ones, etc. And to create a new one, you had to, it was crazy, but basically you had to petition the internet. And people who cared enough would get together and they'd, they'd vote on your proposal and you could create a new group. And um, there was a whole lot of a whole lot of sort of rules and structure around how you could do that. So you couldn't just create any old group. However, um, there was a subset that was sort of a, it was a set aside. These were the alt groups, and they'd be alt dot whatever um, that didn't have the same level of rules and structure. And just about anyone could create an alt group. Uh, like it was re remarkably easy. And this inevitably caused a lot of sort of jokey groups to come about. I promise you this is going somewhere. Um, and one of the things that people would do is they would, you know, if you didn't like, you know, alt dot, uh, you know, recreation dot chess, you could create alt dot alt dot recreation dot chess as sort of like the, you know, fine, I'm going to go create my own splinter group of, of chess fanatics. And by the way, uh, chess fanatics are very capable of forming splinter groups. That's a, a known dynamic. Um, well, so this would go to absurd levels and people would create groups and there's one group called alt.alt.alt.alt.alt.alt. That was the whole name of the group. And people would create these groups and then abandon them because, you know, what is it really about? It's just you created it because you thought it'd be funny to see the name propagate across the internet. But what would happen is once the group's created, it's kind of there forever. But because it was unmoderated, anybody could effectively move in. And so some of these groups had squatters, uh, people who, you know, weird little communities. Um, so alt.alt.alt.alt.alt, or 5alt, as uh, its denizens came to call it, was this weird place where people would post, like, uh, surrealist poetry and all sorts of weird, crazy nonsense. And it was – it wasn't terribly uh, – clear communication going on there. But a weird sort of community grew up there. And so it felt about as close to a public space as you can get. Now, it was kind of the the digital equivalent of um, a bunch of uh, like crazy people and and uh, and hippies and et cetera, uh, creating a little tent city in a park level of uh, found community. But, but still, it, w it was – that it, the the space was being used as a public space, but that era of the internet's pretty much over. We're not going to find stuff like that again. Um. So, where am I going? Let, let's bring it back to churches. If churches retreat into the online only mode that we seem to be headed toward, then they're going to become more and more purely about information, about truth about preaching messages about meaning. But that's just one of the three legs of the stool. That's meaning without a lot of purpose and with with very thin, low, low bandwidth connection and certainly not you know random chance social encounters. 
So online church so far does not seem to be any good at service or community. The action leg and the passion leg, they're missing. And that worries me deeply. Um, I was already thinking about this before the pandemic happened, um, recognizing that uh, church attendance has been in decline for a long time um, as people become more and more dissatisfied with the the messages that they've been hearing, but also as other things come to compete with it. And then you throw that into the mix, the 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 fact that through things like podcasts and YouTube videos and websites, um, you no longer need your local church to get that sort of content if that's what you want anyway. And so I, it was already occurring to me that if churches want to continue to have a, a, a purpose and a meaning uh, and have connection with other people, that they would have to find some way of demonstrating the value of the stuff outside of, of the sermon. Because that's the main thing that people were getting online is the sermon, the information, the data portion of what a church offers. Because unfortunately, and I've got a whole theological, spiritual, historical theory and explanation behind this, but we won't get into it now because this is running a little long. Um, Christianity especially, but really most of the world religions, if not all of them, kind of got increasingly stuck on the idea that, that you could find meaning in data that it's all about information. It's all about truth. Now, truth is really important. I'm on the record as being a big believer and lover of uh, objective outside of my own reality, truth, capital T. But uh, there's more to it than truth. And there should be more to a church than truth. Um, if you become hyper-focused on truth, you lose sight of what's good and you stop being useful. That's happened to a lot of churches. Anyway, so even before the pandemic, I think this is a crisis that the church has been facing, and the pandemic has put a brick on the accelerator of this process. And so what for me used to be sort of mild musings of, oh, what's the next generation of church going to be like? And over the next 20 years, how do we make things better? I think that over the 20 years that I was thinking even two years ago is now suddenly, what's going to happen in 2022? Because I think that's where we are. Um, I think we're, we're at the very leading edge of a crisis, um, that I thought was going to take longer to develop. And, uh, so we're running out of time to come up with ideas. And yet I'm still mostly optimistic about this new future that we're building. Uh, I'm very excited by all the positive things. I just hope that as a society, as a civilization, we can find a way to be more thoughtful and intentional about the next version of the world rather than just letting it happen to us however it unfolds. Um, because if we just let things happen, then, um, well, there are powerful forces that will direct them and there are inanimate forces that will direct events as they unfold. Uh, you know, market pressures and algorithms and bad actors will all have a chance to influence the future. I think the rest of us should be part of that conversation. So I, this is why I put stuff like this out there. I want you thinking about this. And uh, hopefully somebody hearing this five years from now, listening back to these early episodes, say, oh yeah, isn't it good that we realize the value of random social interaction 
at the same time that we realized that where you lived and what you did for a living didn't have to be connected. That's the future I want want to to find. That's the future I want to have my kids have their kids in. One where we haven't lost empathy for one another. We haven't lost connection. But we have gone forward with freeing ourselves from being trapped geographically by our occupations. So how do we get there? Good question. Uh, if all this is interesting to you and you want to learn more about it, uh, I already mentioned Justin McElroy's TEDx talk. Um, you should definitely go watch that. Also, uh, there's an article in The Atlantic that uh, I just saw this week. I'm going to put a link to both of those actually in uh, the description of uh, this podcast. Um, you can also find these things linked on my website, macfraser.com. Uh, everything that, that I'm putting in this podcast today uh, also appears in a slightly different form uh, in an article uh, titled The Center Cannot Hold, but perhaps that's good, question mark, that uh, went out this week as well. Um, trying to see what the actual date on this is. Yeah, it's the February 2nd, 2021 uh, post. So you can find the links there if uh, your podcast reader doesn't make it easy for you to find the links in the description. Um, and if you just want to Google it yourself, the Atlantic article is titled Superstar Cities Are in Trouble, subtitled The Past Year Has Offered a Glimpse of the Nowhere Everywhere Future of Work and It Isn't Optimistic for Big Cities by Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic. So great article. Um, totally worth your time. Justin McElroy's uh, podcast or TED Talk, totally worth listening to. I strongly recommend both of them to you. And uh, check them out. In the meantime, let me know what you think about all this. Um, what is a post-COVID world going to look like? What worries you about it? What uh, are you excited by? And what can we do to shape it? Or maybe you think, nah, you know, when this pandemic thing goes away, we're going to basically return to the world that we left behind a year ago. And uh, there won't be the, the, the long permanent changes. Or maybe you think there'll be permanent changes and they have nothing to do with these social and economic things I'm talking about. Maybe you think it's just going to be, oh, we're going to stop shaking hands and we're not going to blow out birthday candles in public anymore. I don't know. What do you think? Let me know. Drop a comment. Drop me an email. Uh, com. No, sorry. No, at gmail.com. That's my email address. Or just Mac Frazier, no dots, until you get to the dot com for my website. And uh, yeah, I hope you're having a great day, great week, and thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>